Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. time together in your word. Um, Pray that this would be uh, enriching for us and uh, good for us, a good study for us, and at the very least that it would be helpful to somebody who hears this down the line. Um, In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, tonight we will be in Psalm 12 and 13. Um, I think I've already got being a 12 up there. Yes, okay. Um, so let's go ahead and jump into it. Um, Psalm 12, uh, titled in the ESV, The Faithful Have Vanished, uh, opens with a, to the choir master, according to the Sheminith, the Psalm of David. Um, I really don't have anything to add on those. Of course, that was covered in prior sessions, what those items mean, so I won't belabor that point. Um, but I will say, for context, uh, Spurgeon actually taught that this psalm was most likely written during the latter days of Saul's reign. Um, He claimed, and this claim came from a lot of current theologians at the time, kind of a good number of them kind of unanimously agreed that this was probably the case, um, that the effects of Saul's kingship was uh, causing a general decay of honesty and faith, not just in Saul's royal court, but also across the land of Israel in general. David would have been particularly affected by this as by this point his fame was increasing uh, to a degree where Saul was openly jealous of him. And I would argue that uh, in accordance with that kind of idea, uh, people were probably talking behind David's back about his rise in popularity and the people's favor of him. Um, I should say the people were talking about the general people's favor of him negatively as a way to garner favor with Saul and those who served Saul. Um, So, uh, given that context, let's go ahead and hop in. Um, I'll read verses one and two. Uh, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Um, Right off the bat, uh, we have something almost of like a a lamentation feel. Uh, It's kind of crying out to the Lord that we see kind of a lot in the Old Testament, and I would say especially from the prophets. Um, The the statement there, the godly one is gone. Um, In the NASB version, they translate it as the godly man ceases to be. (laughs) Um, I submit that the combining of those two translations is what really gets us to the heart of the matter that he's going for here. He's submitting that the very idea of a godly man is ending. It's ceasing to be, hence they are gone. Um, This is kind of clarified further by the rest of the verse. The faithful vanish from among the children of man. 
um, which, I mean, yeah, that kind of makes it super clear. So why did I spend <laughs> that time looking so close at that first little part there? Um, the reason I clarified that first part is just to kind of address, uh, this is a good example of how simple it is to even accidentally misrepresent scripture. If you were to read that first part, the godly one is gone, and just stop right there without going any further or anywhere prior, you know, the whole open the Bible, drop it, open it, put your finger down kind of a thing. This, this means something to me. Um, if you were to take just that line on its own, uh, the godly one is gone, you could reasonably see how the idea could form in one's head saying something about, well, God or Jesus or God's presence is leaving mankind or has left or something like that. Um, but that's not the intent. And that's not the intent of this passage as a whole. It's mourning the decline of man. Uh, not that God has left man, but man has left God. That's what he's getting at here. It's, it's a declaration of what I would present is, or suggest is a true proof of bad times. We really don't appropriately call the times bad when we are poor, when we are hungry, when war and rumors of war loom. Um, those things will happen. Times are bad in the truest sense when, uh, to quote Spurgeon, there is a general decay of honesty and piety among men. So I will say, isn't it, uh, isn't it interesting, as a, you know, a secondary note here, that David, who is so known for his battles, right, for his battles and his military victories, he's a guy who you could easily make a war epic film about, um, but in his psalms and in his songs and poetry um, regarding his crying out to God and what he cries out to God about and how he cries out to God, way more often he's asking for God's assistance, not in battle, not in war, not in physical conflict, but in conflict of gossip and backtalking and, and people spreading rumors and lies and things like that. Um, the, the idea that a man as physically powerful as David could not trust his knowledge of war to fight this sort of battle. You know, he, so he, calls, he has to call out to God. This is a place where he doesn't have the strength. Um, in verse 2, when it goes on to say, everyone lies, flattering lips, the description of the, the ungodly, um, I want to hone in on that phrase, uh, with a double heart they speak. Um, if you look in the original text, uh, the original language, it actually says, uh, with a heart and a heart they speak. Um, remember we talked a while ago about the idea that your heart or it represents the seat of your focus, your desire, what drives you, your nature. So in this case, he's saying you have one of those and then you have another. One is for group, for, for this group, and one is for that group. So the idea in this case, what David's, how David's presenting this is that someone claims to have a heart, have a drive, have a focus for David and to support him, speaking one way to him, but also has a heart for his enemies, speaking a different way behind his back, doing different things to support them and cut him down behind his back. Um, 
And for us, I'd say this, this is the idea that someone presents themselves as having a, a heart for the things of God with the people of God. But in their life, in every other circumstance, they have a heart that's immersed in the things of the world, being of two hearts. Um, and while it's true that we do kind of all have this double heart, we do kind of, all, all of us do kind of slip into duplicitous motives for some reason or another, that fleshly pull to twist the truth to serve ourselves. Um, we all have that capacity inside of us, but it should be noted how I think David is using hyperbole here. This is not a truly blanket statement. He's not making a definitive statement that everyone in the world is evil. Everyone is this, you know. There's no one who's faithful among all the children of men. Everybody's against him, you know. It's just, this is how it, it feels at this point. This is his focus at this point. Um, and uh, I've said this before uh, in here, and it's kind of uh, a habit for me. I guess this is one of my, like, uh, rep repetitive uh, themes. Um, the idea that, you know, this is another example of someone being permitted to experience their sorrows and feelings, um, not suppress them, but not dwell in them, but do honestly experience them. You know, David does come to this passage with an exaggeration, you know, oh God, everybody's wicked, everybody's bad, nobody's good, everybody's out to get me. Um, and yeah, like I said, from a thousand foot view, you can kind of easily go, well, no, that's an exaggeration. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'd imagine that everybody listening to this uh, has felt this way at some point or another, um, whether in the specific sense of feeling like you're the last one holding on to truth amidst a bunch of lies, uh, or in that persecution kind of notion, a time when perhaps a lie was told about you that everybody else seemed to believe. Um, what I'm getting at, I guess, is this. There's kind of two extremes in Christianity that I think we need to beware of when it comes to our feelings. Um, the first is the one that we see very kind of widespread right now, the idea that how you feel dictates truth, um, and uh, to which I'll say pay close attention to this psalm and many others, because uh, they do help show how we avoid that. But the other idea is the one that your feelings are pure evil and you have to suppress them all. Um, to that, I'd say these psalms are in the Bible for a reason. God wanted everything that's in the Bible in the Bible. The authors of this book, just like the rest of the Bible, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And while the primary goal of Scripture is to lead us to repentance and salvation through Christ, at the same time, there are massive truths for life woven throughout this book from God for us through these hand-picked offers. So up front, I'll submit the lesson of Psalm 12 is this. When it feels like you're surrounded by liars and you feel like you're standing desperate and alone, the last one standing on God's words, sure, acknowledge your feelings. Don't push them down, bottle them up. Don't perpetuate the lies. You know, don't, don't lean into that thought process so much that you make it truth, but don't suppress it either. But then, once you acknowledge your feelings, take the whole of how you feel and be sure to pull it into God's light. Figure out where you are, then figure out how much of that is valid in the light of a holy God. So, moving on, verses three and four. Uh, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. 
and the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? So um, I think it's interesting that in the first four verses, David is primarily focusing on the depth of wickedness. There's two brief lines that call out for God to act, but even those have that sorrow to them, that lamentation to them. Um, it's the, the idea of one calling out for aid amidst imminent defeat, you know? It's not as hopeful as, uh, as you'd kind of like. Um, but there is going to be this massive tonal shift after this point as we proceed to the second half. Um, so anyway, so looking at that opening there, may the Lord cut off the flattering lips and the tongue that boasts. Um, this is pretty visceral imagery, uh, but it has a double meaning, to be sure. Um, so he is, he is taking this visceral image of the cutting off of the lips and tongues of the liars and boasters, but he's using that not to aim at that as a physical response, but the metaphorical cutting off of a speaker. Um, he's not actually asking God to mutilate his enemies' faces. He's asking for them to be silenced by God's truth, um, the way you might cut someone off by interrupting them with a correct statement if they're speaking false. The idea that a liar can talk and talk and talk and say what they want, but if they're standing next to the thing that negates and proves what they're saying is wrong, that tends to shut them up. Um, Verse 4 is also interesting as, uh, generally speaking, I would say, depictions of the wicked in Scripture uh, often tend towards those who brag in their power or in their money. It's interesting to see that this section is devoted to those who brag in their speech, who brag in their ability to talk, um, showing us, I think, uh, that if we read scripture fully and purposefully, we really do find that just about every kind of vice or false pride gets addressed somewhere. Um, surely you've known someone who bragged in their ability to talk their way out of anything. Uh, people who feel that they can say or do anything because they're so confident that they can mitigate, if not avoid, any consequences by being a smooth talker. Uh, that's what this is describing. Um, and if you look at the end of verse 4, they say, who is master or who is lord over us? I mean, I've, I've even known self-proclaimed Christians who bragged about such a skill. But look at that again there, that who is master, who is lord over us? Um, Scripture's telling us that these people are declaring their own tongue, their own mouth, their skill with words as nullifying their need for a master. So by reveling in their self-proclaimed power, they deny the need for God and place themselves as the highest authority in their heart. It boils back down to pride. If my skill removes my need for oversight, I declare me as God based upon that skill. Moving on. Verses 5 and 6. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. 
because the poor are plundered or oppressed, depending on your translation, uh, and the needy groan, I think it's very common today, again, to hear people teach that the, the, the separation of God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament God, as in the Old Testament, is angry and wrathful and violent and punish-focused. And Jesus, in the New Testament, is loving and caring, and he cares about justice and social awareness and things like that. Um, but I think it's funny that when we honestly view the Bible, when we look at it clearly, we see a true consistency between Old Testament and New Testament, between God and Jesus. Um, yes, Jesus is loving, but he also explains and portrays God's wrath from time to time very clearly. God does present rules. He does display his just wrath uh, very clearly. Um, but as in a passage like this, he clearly shows that he cares about the needy that he cares about those who are oppressed. It's, it, this is a wonderful example of this, that God says, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will arise. Something for us to hold on to, I think. Um, yeah, God speaks, he clarifies that he's taking corrective action because of these actions, because of this oppression. Um, and, and I would say this is a clear statement that God has always been a, against such behavior. Um, it's just not his focal point. God's focal point is his own glory, first and foremost. But the secondary issues of injustice and things like that and his dealing with those, that does happen, but it happens as an outpouring of that focus on how properly uh, glorified he is. Um, then verse 6, which I actually... Uh, I, really, I really like verse 6 after I took some time to, to go through it. Um, first of all, it talks about the, the words of the Lord are pure words, right? Pure, pure meaning clean, um, meaning uh, ethically, morally pure, without imperfection, without blemish, um, in stark contrast, right, to the first four verses where he talks basically about um, the words or what comes out of man's mouth, right, being uh, full of deceit and lies, blemish, if you will. So God speaks purely as opposed to, now remember, he was speaking in hyperbole, but at this point, it's, this is actually a fair everyone statement. Everybody does speak with blemish as compared to God, God speaks perfect, we do not. So this hyperbole starts to take on more of a literal uh, sense when we get to the, the, the further metaphor of this, uh, this particular psalm. Um, now when we get to the, um, this metalworking metaphor here, um, in the ESV, uh, as I read, it says, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Some passages say that. Some say silver refined in an earthen crucible or a crucible on the ground. Um, some passages say like silver refined in a crucible or in a fire and gold refined seven times. Um, I'm just saying that because there's a decent number of translations and good ones too that use the gold thing instead of the, the, the silver and gold as opposed to just the gold. I, it's... I really submit 
that the way I read it from the ESV is the correct translation of the actual Hebrew there. Um, what I think happened is that there's a particular word there um, that comes in when it says silver, refined in, um, and then it it's, says a word, and that word is like crucible or furnace. And then the next word that follows gets kind of put after sort of a hypothetical comma and linked to purified seven times as opposed to linked to furnace. That word is la'aretz, and that comes from the root word eretz. So that word, early translators took to mean gold. I think what happened is that they didn't, this was probably very early on in translation history, probably before, you know, we had like Dead Sea Scrolls and everything. And the assumption was, well, we don't know what that word means, but my guess is this is like a silver and gold passage because silver goes with gold. So you talk about silver, you talk about gold. Problem is every other use of that word, irets, means land or earth. Um, pretty much uniformly across the board. Um, and to the point where it looks like that is literally the translation of that word. I don't think this is a word that has multiple meanings. I think it just means earth. Um, so it seems like it was an honest mistake. And if your translation has the silver and gold in it, I don't think that's bad per se. I think you're just missing the fullness of the imagery that David's getting at here. Um, and I'll, and I'll explain that now. So if you take it the way that it's presented here, um, silver refined in a furnace on the ground or an earthen furnace purified seven times. Um, there's multiple chunks here that kind of build into a greater metaphor. Uh, first, he clarifies that the silver is being refined in an earthen furnace. Um, this is to imply the grandness of the refining process. Uh, you could use a small furnace to do small amounts of metalworking. But if you wanted to do a big job, you needed a large-scale furnace. And early large-scale furnaces were actually dug into the earth. You build a really big fire at one end of it and some clever uh, air-moving techniques um, heat up the actual furnace part to insane uh, temperatures. And uh, this was used for all kinds of... Uh, furnace-related things, from uh, making clay pottery, uh, making tiles, metalworking. It continued to be, this method continued to be used well on into the Middle Ages in some areas. Um, so this is a, a grand process. This is a large-scale thing. Second, we have that mention of this refining of the, happening seven times. So typically, for the sake of ease, silver was refined once. Uh, often that's pure enough for general craftsmanship. If you wanted to get it really pure or like if you felt like there were a few imperfections, you might give it another go or even a third to try and get it as pure as possible. But you're not really refining silver a whole lot. The, um, the seven here on the surface implies that you're doing this a lot, far more than usual, uh, with the implication that that'll get it as pure as possible. But there is an added symbolism to this. Um, the number seven in scripture does have its own symbolism upon it. This is why it pops up so many times in scripture. Just to name a few, seven days of creation leading to a seven-day week. 
seven pairs of clean animals brought onto the ark by Noah, the seven days of Passover feast, the seven-year cycle around Jubilee, walls of Jericho fall after seven days. Out of Mary Magdalene were cast seven demons. Jesus says to forgive 77 times multiplied by seven. And Revelation, oh my gosh, don't even get me started. Revelation is tons of sevens. Um, and like I said, that's just really scratching the surface of it. Um, so what's the point? Well, seven in scripture is symbolic of completion. It's uh, more specifically holy and appropriate completion. Um, it's the completion that God does. When God does something perfectly, seven is typically used. So when he says that the silver is refined seven times, he's saying that the words of the Lord, that's the silver, are fully complete and fully perfected. If silver were incompletely refined, or even any metal really, that means that it contains trace elements of other metals or dross that make imperfections in it and might make it weak if there's a lot of it or might just make it look a little ugly if uh, there's not a lot of it. We speak incompletely. The best any human teacher can do will always contain that dross somewhere, imperfections. But God doesn't have that problem. His words are full and perfect. And finally, the metal he used is silver. So why silver? Why is that so important, especially as compared to silver and gold? Well, to put it simply, when it's at its most refined state, silver is a reflective surface. God's words are his silver. They perfectly reflect him. This is why scripture often warns us to mind our words, you know, because the, the goal is to be like him, to kind of try to, em, you know, emulate his holiness and follow in his example. So that's why he says, you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because our words, even at our most honest, tend to obscure some part of us. But God's words don't. They perfectly reflect him. You can take God's words as full truth, and you can use his words to know him. So I think David's he's presenting us this verse here, this awesome metaphor, to remind us, the, you know, do you struggle with trusting that you're forgiven? Do you struggle to believe God can use you, even where you are? Do you struggle with his promises of what is to come? I would say this verse is for you if you're feeling that. It's a beautiful reminder of that. Moving on, verses 7 and 8. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Um, so this psalm is, uh, this, this psalm, I was about to say this verse, this psalm is interesting in that so far, it's the first one that ends on a downer. It ends on a negative note. Um, at least as far as like the last phrase of it is. Um, there is that continuation of the thought of God's protection is still in that ending. But like I said, that last line, it ends on the wickedness of the world. Um, and even I would suggest that it's, it's almost even kind of a prophetic statement regarding the increase of wickedness, that as vileness, wickedness is exalted among the children of man, that implies a continuing, a growing. 
Um, and I think this can be hard to swallow if we're not reading verse 7 correctly um, in full light of redemptive history and what God truly means by protecting and blessing. So when he says, you, O Lord, will keep them, um, the them, I think, can potentially mean two things. Uh, primarily, it means his words, the, the, the silver that we were talking about, that God will keep his words since, since they're pure and complete. Um, but the them could also be, the reason for saying them could also be to include both the silver and the believer. Um, so I'll, I'll explain more in a minute. Uh, with regards to his words, though, um, I would say God has always proven this true through the ages. Uh, cool side note, in, uh, in a sermon on this particular psalm, um, a preacher by the name of James Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, he said this, uh, quote, uh, the French atheist Voltaire once said, in 20 years Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. He wrote that in 50 years no one would remember Christianity. But in the year he wrote that, the British Museum paid the Russian government $500,000 for a Bible manuscript while one of Voltaire's books was selling in the London bookstalls for just eight cents. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> I thought that was pretty neat. Um, and it's true, even to this day, the Bible still stands as the best-selling book of all time. Yes, there may have been a year or two where Harry Potter was the best-selling book, but of all time, it's the Bible. <laughs> Um, but when he goes on to say, you will guard us, you will guard us from this generation, um, or you will guard him in some translations, it's referring to the godly one. Um, but here's the thing, how are we guarded, and guarded forever, as it says there, when we see throughout scripture uh, and Christian history following scripture, uh, wild persecution and death of God's people. Uh, one might be inclined to think that God has not lived up to his side of the bargain, so to speak, that God has not lived up to this statement if you believe that guarding means physical or purely physical. I submit to you that God absolutely did guard every single believer who died for the cause of Christ. He absolutely guarded them from the generation they found themselves in. Um, so what's, what's the generation? Let's look at that for a second. Well, if you go back to the beginning of the psalm, he's describing the generation. Generation where the godly ones are gone. Generation where people are turning from God to selfish desires. It's a generation, yes, in the immediate sense that David found himself in with the people around him, but in the prophetic sense, that's time. That's where we live here on earth. That's this generation before God comes back. Um, in that sense, yeah, we do the, the, that opening, you know, that I said seemed so hyperbolic. It really is where we find ourselves. The world is trending that way. But how does God guard us from that? Well, what does it mean to not be guarded from this generation? What does it mean to fall to this generation? to turn to this generation is to follow our selfish desires, is to live as though I am God and deny the one true God and so resign myself to hell and damnation separate from God. 
God protects those he loves by giving them the strength to remain in him. Those who died for God were indeed guarded by him in that during their pain, tribulation, and suffering, even unto death, he gave them the strength to not take their eyes off of him, the strength to not deny him and not give in to the generation that they found themselves in, and so being, he protected them forever. And now let's go ahead and hop into Psalm 13. Um, This one is quite short, actually, so this might go pretty quick. Um, But it's me, so it won't. Um, (laughs) uh, Psalm 13, um, the title in the ESV is How Long, O Lord, which is highly appropriate. If you don't know why, you'll see in just a moment. Uh, once again, an opener to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Again, um, we've, co- we've kind of covered that already, so I'm not going to worry about that one. Um, and I'm going to, uh, well, before, before I get into it, I do think Psalm 12 and 13 go very well together. Um, to the point where, personally, <laughs> I'm going to specify that, and I'll explain that in a moment too. Personally, I kind of think they were intended to be taken together. Um, I just want to note that I do not have historical support for my theory. This is an assumption on my part, a thematic assumption. Um, What I see in this, 12 sort of explains the general situation. It's the open narrative, if you will, of, um, it sets the stage. 13 treads similar ground, but from the individual perspective of someone going through that narrative built by 12. Um, Like I said, that's, but... This is my assumption because, to be fully transparent, uh, we, we do not know the surrounding context for this particular psalm. And we do not know to such unassurity that Charles Spurgeon actually wrote in his commentary that, and I guess people were doing this, to try and claim that this psalm falls into a particular area of David's life is pure guesswork and should never be taken as fact. So I can only imagine that people were somehow utilize, like claiming they knew where it belonged and using that to, to do something kind of underhanded. I don't know what, though. Uh, so yes, I, I typically, uh, if you don't by now, don't know by now, you just kind of start, and I like to, to just kind of work my way through the, the psalm or the chapter, depending on what it is, verse by verse. But this one's so short, and I think it might be helpful to read it as a whole before breaking it down. So I'm going to do that real quick. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Okay, so um, note right off the bat the repetition of the how long question. Once again, why I said it's highly appropriate that this is titled that. 
Um, he could have easily phrased those questions differently. Uh, but instead, he purposefully goes for this repetition so that the questions would kind of build upon each other. That makes it an intensifying of the question. Because they do kind of get to the same thing. They get to the same theme, the same uh, base question. Um, and, and that's why it says they build on each other and intensify in that way. Uh, and I think these words can potentially come across uncomfortably. Uh, sometimes the way we've been taught how to interact with God might make verses 1 and 2 seem almost inappropriate, almost accusatory. Um, but once again, if you look at the heart behind it, I would say initially, haven't we all been there again? Isn't there at least one question in those two verses, if not more than one question, that you can say that you have felt? Um, haven't you felt as though those who are against you received undue praise for their attacks against you especially? Um, haven't you felt at some point that you were your only support or counsel? Uh, or haven't you felt that God was far away? Uh, many times people will take a leap and say that these feelings are sinful that you're questioning God and his authority. And this is where, uh, why I wanted to read the whole psalm, why I think that's important for this one specifically. Note that David ends this one very differently from the start, as he typically does. Um, but the thing to take away is that, yeah, if you, again, if you take those first two verses and you stay there, if you don't grow past that, if you, don't put those, if you don't deal with those by putting them in the light of God's glory, then what could be an initially honest concern and stress turns into then a lifestyle of questioning and doubting God. But see how he ends it so differently from where he started. He doesn't remain in that questioning. Yes, he starts there, but he doesn't stay there. Um, and that's the thing. We don't, we don't, we don't, ignore that part of us. We don't ignore our worry. We, we acknowledge it, but we don't stay there. Um, so again, note the question, how long? Once again, it can be easy for us to take that as an accusatory, but I think if we look at this correctly, if we look at this in light of David as a person, and if we look at this in the light of how it was most likely originally intended in the Hebrew, that how long is more of a positive than you might think. That how long carries implication that God will indeed act. There's no doubt in God's power here. There's no doubt in his ability to do the things that David is asking. The question is not can you. The question is not even will you. The question is when will you. Um, now, the potential selfishness there, um, if somebody does this incorrectly, is when will I see what I want? But the honesty of this question is, God, I trust you. I know what you can do. I would just humbly come before you and ask, when will you do? Because right now I feel lost. Um, and I think that's perfectly fair. Uh, I also wanted to, among the things he says, I, I think um, it's wise for us to note uh, how long must I take counsel in my soul? Um, 
I think that's, that is something that should resonate with us because I think we often do this. We often seek solace from within. And uh, we try to answer our problems and sorrows with our own understanding. But we actually make very poor counselors of ourselves. Uh, and the result is usually that we fall further into sorrow and depression without the truth of God and his word. If we remain our own counselors as opposed to letting God counsel us. Um, moving on to three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. Um, so I don't have a lot to say on this little chunk here. I do think it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, though, uh, I do want to spend just a moment on the imagery of the second part of verse 3. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. The interesting thing there for me is that light up my eyes is usually an opposite statement to the uh, traditional statement of light leaving the eyes as a symbol of death. That's usually a way, you know, you, you hear it a lot in a uh, poetic phrase and sometimes even in modern writing, but I think in modern writing we are borrowing from old uh, writing in that case in the idea of, you know, when someone dies, the, the light leaves them. The light leaves their eyes. Um, you know, the, the, the modern colloquialism is the lights go out. But I, this was something even then, too, to, to light up the eyes as opposed to the light leaving the eyes in death. Um, but here's the thing. He says this, right, light up my eyes, as opposed to lest I sleep the sleep of death. Um, but in saying that, he's implying that his eyes are not already lit. He's saying, my eyes are not let yet lit. I need you to light up my eyes to keep me from dying. I am not dead, but I am not alive. I submit that this is, again, a prophetic example of salvation through Christ. Um, we are not truly alive without Christ lighting up our, our eyes, so to speak, giving us true life. And yet, while we are on this earth before Christ, we have not slept the sleep of death yet. We have, you know, the, that's, we seek Christ and his salvation to keep us from truly dying. I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, yeah. So, uh, moving on, uh, wrapping up this, this uh, psalm, verses 5 and 6. Uh, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Um, again, just, just calling back to how, how heavy and how dark it started at the beginning, but how light it is here, taking that as a whole, recognizing that the, 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 the former, the start, is, is not the problem so long as the asker winds up in this place. And this is a good reminder to help get past that. Um, for funsies, uh, take a look at the tenses used here. But I have trusted past tense, in your love. 
My heart shall rejoice, future. I will sing, future, because he has, past, dealt bountifully with me. Um, what God has done is continually prove himself. What he has also done is tell us what will happen when we are in him. This is throughout scripture. Um, I mean, once again, look at the last psalm when he talks about how pure his words are, how they reflect him, how we can trust them. Um, because of this, even when we don't see things clearly in our lives, these things, these things of God, we know that we can rejoice in him because his promises, uh, because of him and his promises. Um, and I think that these psalms and songs of praise are here, especially ones like this, to help us remember that. Uh, David forces himself to remember when God has come through for him, and he draws upon those facts as proof of God's ability to continue to save him. Um, and also note, too, David is kind of making a command to himself. My heart shall rejoice. Like, whether it wants to or not, this is going to happen. Um, and I think this is great advice for us. Uh, in preaching a sermon on this, Charles Spurgeon relayed a story he heard of a young servant girl, a maid, living and working in the house of a wealthy woman. Uh, the woman uh, would hear the maid regularly singing hymns to herself while she was in the bath late in the evening after her work was done. Uh, one day she came to the, mad and to the maid and asked her why she was always singing at that time. Um, the maid replied that singing the hymns helped her keep the bad thoughts away. And I think this is what David is trying to teach us with this and many other psalms. It's good to sing these praises to God, especially when all hope seems lost, because it's an easy way to remind ourselves of his glory and his promises to us and to keep the bad thoughts away. Um, and just to wrap up for tonight, um, there's a, a fantastic quote uh, from Spurgeon on the Psalms in general. Uh, he says, whenever you look into David's Psalms, you may somewhere or another see yourselves. You never get into a corner, but you find David already in that corner. I think that I was never so low that I could not find that David was lower. And I never climbed so high that I could not find that David was up above me, ready to sing his song upon his stringed instrument, even as I could sing mine. That's a beautiful reminder for us of what this is here for. Um, and yes, so are there any questions? Yes, go ahead. Could you um, elaborate on what the Sheminith is in Psalm 12? The Sheminith, okay. That one was, hold on. Okay, you must not have been here the week we talked about that. The Sheminith, if I remember correctly, was a stringed instrument, and I believe that is the one... So the Sheminith is either, yes, it's either an eight-stringed instrument or it's a reference to the eighth octave, uh, the lowest octave that you would sing in um, communally. So if it does mean the eighth octave, then that means that it's kind of got a dirge feel to it. It's kind of low. Um, and if it's an eight-stringed instrument, then it's just, yeah, it's an eight-stringed 
uh, instrument. Um, I will say that, oh, so it's actually fair that this was brought up here, because in six, um, uh, I, yeah, I think that was the thing. In six, the Sheminith, uh, in Spurgeon's commentary on six, he talks about how, uh, in his opinion, it would have been dirge-like for the first three verses. That would be lyrical verses. In actual Bible verses, that'd be one through seven of ch uh, chapter six. Um, but then Spurgeon suggested that the final lyrical verse, verses 8 through 10, because it's much more hopeful and it's about turning from evil and the Lord returning and, and, you know, and taking away the trouble, he suggested that it would have jumped out of that eighth octave and been on like a high key. So it's possible that that, you know, kind of to the opposite of that for 12, since there really isn't a high key ending, 12 may indeed have been intended to be kind of dirge-like throughout. And, and kind of on that low note. Yeah. I have kind of, oh, I'm sorry. This is kind of ridiculous. Sure. But when um, we're reading in 12, we talk about the furnace. Yes. And you described how they were constructed in the ancient world, they could be heated very hot. Yeah. So I thought of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, sure. And that they were almost like the silver refined in there. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think there's any, any kind of connection with, because this was clearly before them, this song? Right, right. This was before them. When you look at Daniel, that's such an outlandish thing for the to say. Yeah. Right. It really is very outlandish for that to have happened that way. And yeah, I wouldn't, well, here's the thing. Um, some, now it's not in scripture. But there is a church history based on various commentaries, and some suggest that they go back to eyewitness accounts, and sometimes some people suggest that it was inspired knowledge after the fact. But um, what I like about the, 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 what I'm about to say, the, the idea that gets presented a lot, and some people argue is factual, I don't know, we don't have really proof for it, but that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were singing hymns as they were in the furnace. And here's the thing, that's a hymn. It's not, it's not far-fetched to think that they would understand the link-up of symbolism in the situation and have been singing that hymn. I, I think that's it's a definitely a possibility. I'm not going to say it's a fact. I'm not going to say it for sure, no. But uh, it definitely is a distinct possibility. And I, and I do think that you are supposed to, to a degree, kind of conceptually see at least a gentle link-up between you know, this uh, beautiful poetic statement and that real-world event. Yeah. I think that's fair. In Psalm 13, yes. when David says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation, mm -hmm. uh, when he says salvation, what do you take that, that word to mean? Because I think when we use that in the moderate sense, it could be different from what David is saying Sure, sure. I think, so, so if this is one of those, I think, neat passages that has a real uh, present situation application, and it also has that beautiful prophetic uh, implication. Um, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So for his real-world situation right there, that salvation is something that he's experienced before. God has brought him out of all kinds of battles, 
and, and things like that. So he knows God can save him. And that whole, like, my heart will rejoice. I know he trusts that God's going to bring him out of the situation he's just described. So the immediate implication of that is the, the actual situation that's happening to him at that point, he trusts God's going to get him through it. However, um, it does kind of bear that prophetic implication in that, you know, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Well, that's what is to come in Jesus bringing the salvation to the world. And again, I mean, I think that's part of the reason that David writes so many psalms. I think David was, was genuinely praising God for the salvation that he didn't even fully understand was coming, but he couldn't help but be excited about it because he was singing about it, you know? I think there's something very kind of beautiful there and just kind of forward-reaching, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I do think it kind of speaks to both a little bit. Okay. To say, in my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. This full trust that God is going to deliver David from his physical circumstances. Mm. I mean, it certainly seems possible that, even like you spoke about, as we look through church. But I suppose maybe what I'm asking is do you think that he's referring to like a physical deliverance from the lies around him, or is this more of what you spoke about before and that the salvation is not becoming part of that. Mm. I think this is where we can recognize that God's promise to physically prosper and protect an individual, we don't get to apply to our lives. David did have some specific prophecies, uh, pro- prophecies and promises regarding his specific earthly reign. Um, and I think he did genuinely believe, appropriately so, that God was not going to let this situation be the end of him, wherever it falls, because we don't truly know where 13 falls. Um, and, and yeah, and I do, because that's the thing, is God did promise him, to, that he would rule. God did promise him the, you know, the things that did happen that were really good in his life. Um, and, uh, and he saw those things come to fruition. Uh, and he was a prosperous king by and large. Um, but just because God promises to David, that doesn't mean that we get that same promise on an individual level. It's just proof to us that God is capable of these things and that God will see his what's the word I'm looking for, his um, uh, plan come to fruition. Whatever God purposes will happen. Um, so, yes, I, would, I do think it would be arrogant for us to take somebody's individual promise and claim it to ourselves. Um, but you know what? At the same time, I'm going to add in here that um, David, I, I do fully believe, was aware that there was rejoicing to be had even if God decides to call you home, so to speak. Um, You know, where how many times does David basically uh, not 
take the extra step as the warrior, um, not uh, mobilize armies to do X, Y, and Z, when he really could have fully, instead, fully relying on God and saying, you know, if God wants it for me, it'll happen. If God doesn't want it for me, thank you, God, you know? Um, even if that, you know, that second would mean, probably mean him dying. Um, I think it was back in, uh, is it seven? Yeah, in seven, where he basically says, God, judge me. If I, if I, did, if I did the thing, then I deserve the punishment and I'll accept it, you know? So David is somebody who even, and once again, this is why it's good for us never to single out a single idea as, without looking at the whole of the person who's speaking it, because we know that David was, he was ready to accept God's punishment, and he was ready to accept God taking his life if that was necessary. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to suggest that he you know, understood that there was salvation even in God making that decision. Uh, anything else? No? All right. Well, then, thank you all for coming, and that will be that. Thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.